All right, George. Uh, all right, Jim. Let's just get one decent scene filmed today, then we can break for lunch. But it, it, it's six o'clock at night. I know that. We worked right through lunch. I just want to get this movie done so I can get back to my real passion. Uh, rolling around in uh, piles of money? No, George. Sesame Street. And rolling around in piles of money. Okay, Labyrinth. Scene 483, take 47. Uh, which one is this again? The Bog of Eternal Stench. Cue the farting noises. And... action. Ugh, what is this place? You're kidding me, right? No, Hoggle, the stench, it's unbearable. Some might even say, it's Arnold. Right. What kind of a horrible place have we happened upon? I'll give you three goddamn guesses where we are. That's not your line. Cut. Uh, seriously, Hoggle, can't you just read your lines for once so we can get out of here? You know what? I'm not going to film that one again. Not now. We need to move on from this scene. Maybe get our mojo back with something fresh. If you think that'll help. All right, everyone. Set up for Labyrinth Scene 321, Take 1. This is the, uh... The scene with the orange creatures that want to pull Sarah's head off. Oh, that's a nice touch for a kid's movie. Don't look at me. Terry wrote it. What? It's charming. Brits. Okay, here we go. Remember, charming now. And action. Bitch, I'ma pull your head off. Cut. Hey, I get to say cut. Oh, sorry about that. <sighs> we need to move on to something else. Let's try a musical number. Can someone please get Ziggy Stardust on the set? Please, Muppet Man. The name's David. Oh, there you are. Okay, I think we're going to try filming your big musical number. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be to sing to a room full of puppets. That's the spirit. And action! Goblin King to Spoiled Girl. Cut! David, what song is this? This is Goblin King to Spoiled Girl. I've kidnapped your half-bro. Cut! David, we can't use this. You said I got to write the songs for this film. Yes, new songs, not just weird alling your old hits. Oh, well then how about this one then? Wait, it's not just you making the man who sold the world into the man who stole the baby, is it? Not necessarily. We can't use that one either, David. Well, you should have been more specific in my contract. Now I'm going to have to go back to my trailer to work on some ch ch ch, -ch changes to my material. Uh, are we done yet? I'm so hungry I could eat a whole herd of nerfs. Ah, all I wanted was to get one in the can before lunchtime. That's what she said. <laughs> Fuck you, George. Why don't we just skip ahead to the ending? What ending? You know, the ending of the movie? What is the ending to this movie? I don't know. Terry, what's the ending to this movie? Huh. You know, it seems I never wrote one. Great. What are we supposed to do without an ending? Damn it. Okay. Just off the top of my head, uh, the Goblin King tries to seduce the girl. The girl says no. The Goblin King gets bored, sends her and the baby back home, and all the puppets have a super 80s dance party in her room. The end. What do you think? 
I think if it gets us the fuck out of here, I'm into it. Great. We'll piece it together from all the wasted footage we shot today. It's a wrap! In a world where the human race has nearly unlimited access to all forms of media... Mankind faces its greatest enemy. I've come for vengeance. A looming threat. Can you look at that? What is that? A paralyzing choice. You have eight choices. Choose incorrectly, and I cannot be held responsible for your suffering. Is the next movie in my queue good? Or bad. Hey, do you guys want to watch Geely? A war that threatens our very existence. We have come to take over your world. And it will be fought over. Cows. Uh, one podcast dares to make sense of it all. So you don't have to. This is the Sacred Cows Podcast. And now welcome your hosts. Hey everybody, it's Pete. Hi, I'm Mike. Thanks, Thanks disembodied, disembodied voice guy. guy. Say, disembodied voice guy. Wait, wait a second. Uh, where's the other guy? Uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Matthew? Oh, The uh, other you, host? Oh, you mean uh, Matthew Morris, the guy who guest starred on our Star Wars episode? Yeah, him. Wasn't he uh, a host on the last episode? Uh, what? I, disembodied voice guy, what are you talking about? I, uh, I swear he was, he was a host on the last episode. Uh, uh, no. I'm confused. N- no, no, it, it was just, uh, just us, Pete and Mike. Oh, and you, of course. So, uh, but, uh, <laughs> I really don't know what you're talking about. Uh, have you been doing multidimensional travel again lately? Or some strong drugs? All right, that's it. I'm leaving. Uh, well, hope, hope he gets better. Welcome to the Sacred Cows Podcast, the podcast where we talk about old movies that you remember. And old movies that you'd like to forget, perhaps. This is your guide to whether your nostalgia rings true or not. Exactly. So today we're going to be talking about... This is the 1986 Jim Henson classic, Labyrinth. And uh, it is starring the late, great artist David Bowie. Part of the reason why we picked uh, this film for now, this is a memorable movie appearance by David Bowie uh, at his very 80s-est. If you're just joining us for the first time, what we do is we end up talking about the history of the movie, uh, you know, different kinds of facts about the making of it, things like that. And then we take a little break and talk about deep, deep spoilers. Anything in the movie is fair game. So when we get to that point, we're going to give you a warning if you wanted to go watch the movie before you end up listening to that section, that's the time to do so. But come on, people, you had 30 years to watch it. You can't get too sore at us for those spoilers. So let's get right into that history section. 
Right. So uh, what have you learned about this movie Labyrinth uh, during your studies, Mike? I learned that this is a very hard movie to research. <laughs> we, we usually do quite a bit of, uh, of, of looking up of information about these movies. Uh, a lot of things come out years later where writers, directors, actors, crew people uh, want to talk about all these different movies, you know, from the 80s and 90s. And I found it extremely extremely odd that there's not a lot of things written up about this movie well you know sometimes enough time has passed where they're just kind of more interested in talking about their newer materials i mean this movie came out a ways before the internet so you know was it worth revisiting at that time i don't know but this this is a cult classic i think with a healthy following so there must be people out there who want to uh, do research on it uh, yeah, and maybe it's just not readily apparent on the internet. I know that it wasn't necessarily a, well, it, it straight up wasn't a financial success. I mean, it had a budget of $25 million, and it only grossed 12.7 during its theatrical run. So it was considered ah, a commercial so it failure. Was a bomb. Yeah. Well, that's, um, I guess you would say that's unusual for the likes of uh, the kind of notable cast of characters, both behind and in front of the camera we can at least give some uh easy to find details like that right it's a it's a jim henson movie it was directed by jim henson produced by george lucas written by terry jones of monty python fame so some big names there some i would call them you know titans of the industry obviously you've got um david bowie in the in the starring um antagonist role as jareth the goblin king uh Gen a young jennifer Connolly. Uh, as Sarah, the 15-year-old uh, girl who's basically the protagonist. So we're told. <laughs> yes, so we're told. Um, and then you've got all sorts of people that are just involved in general uh, Henson and Muppetdom um, doing, you know, different voices of different creatures and characters that are seen throughout the movie, including Kevin Clash who you may remember right. from our Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle episode playing Master Splinter and also very well known as Elmo. That's right. We also have other voice work done by Brian Henson, that would be Jim Henson's son, and Frank Oz, you know, Grover Yoda. We've, we've talked about Yoda already on this podcast, so just the usual cast of characters, I guess. It's kind of like the uh, Sesame Street production team got together and made Lord of the Rings a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. You know, even though it's the same team of puppeteers that are doing, you know, the Muppets and things like that, um, this is very much uh, in, in a different style. There's the Muppet style where they're felt for the most part or, you know, super hairy, uh, things like that. They clearly stick out of the environment. And this is part of the um, Jim Henson Creature Shop division of, uh, of Jim Henson's um, uh, Hollywood uh, empire. This is where, you know, they make sure that the characters do blink, whereas, like, Muppets don't. They're trying to create a realistic-looking um, world and characters populating that world, and they spent a lot of time doing it. I read that Jim Henson's, uh, you know, workshop spent a year and a half making all of the puppets for this this uh, film which is a hell of a long time oh and it, and it really shows the the without spoiling too much of the movie just the quality of of the puppets and uh 
you know, how the, uh, the, realistic right. looking the the ways that they make sense anatomically speaking for the world that they're in, the care is clearly shown there. The detail and the articulation on the puppets, I would say, is astounding. The film has incredible practical effects. Uh, it, it just really does, even today. Let's talk a little bit about um, some things that we did find. This is kind of a, a, a movie that's influenced by a lot of different things. Um, it's sort of got an Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz... Um, you know, uh, grim fairy tale vibe going. Right. Uh, main character is Dorothy, kind of. I guess that'll make David Bowie the wizard. <laughs> he he kind of is the man behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the man behind the makeup. It's been stated, oh, well, Terry Jones wrote the script for this movie. It was, of course, developed by Jim Henson and Brian. How are we going to say his name? Froud? I think um, it's, yeah. Who, well, they, they worked together on the Dark Crystal. They were looking to do something, you know, fantasy again, but quite a bit lighter than that because that, that movie got pretty heavy and dark, um, I thought. I've only seen it once. But um, a huge influence on this movie was just David Bowie being there, basically. Uh, it sounds like they, they let him do what he wanted with that character. Oh, yes, yes. And according to... Um some other sources. Uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of input uh, right on on set, even from um, Henson, um, George Lucas visiting, uh, different things like that. There was there was uh, apparently uh, many drafts of the script that had been uh, looked at by uh, uh, Laura Phillips, one of the producers, and of course the executive producer was George Lucas on this one. You know, at the height of his uh, Star Wars fame, right. So 25 drafts, the skip, the script went through 25 drafts, including uh, a couple of rewrites by Bowie, I believe. Right, exactly. So (laughs) so. everybody basically had their finger in that pie. And it, you know, it that's why it took so long, I think, in order to get everything finalized and ready to start shooting. Uh, Most of it was filmed in uh, England. They filmed in England and uh, New York, I think. And then, of course, there were some, some uh, actually some CG elements in the film as well. Right. The very first shots you see in the film during the credits, I mean, this, this is not a spoiler, um, are of an owl uh, flying around. And it is considered widely to be the first use of a realistic CG effect in a film. It's a heck of a lot better than the uh, owl flying around at the beginning of Clash of the Titans, that's for sure. <laughs> unless, unless that never happened. I, that's just something I think I remember about that movie. But yeah, I was surprised to see that. It's like, wow, this is full CG. Interesting. For a Jim Henson movie, that's almost all practical effects. But Apparently, uh, director Henson did a lot of the heavy lifting on the very first editing of the of the or cutting of the film and then afterwards he basically had george lucas take a look at it and then uh lucas's uh edit is what ended up being the final cut Uh uh-oh no (laughs) i'm sure that that worked out just fine Eh, um it was eh. still young george lucas sure sure we mentioned briefly that this movie was not a box office success i think i might be able to explain that in part uh this movie was competing contemporarily with the following movies at the box office karate kid 2 top gun and ferris bueller's day off which means that this movie only opened at number eight and uh 
you know, it had some stiff competition, honestly. Yeah, that list you just read are some of the biggest hits of the 80s period. Absolutely. So you can understand, perhaps, why <laughs> it didn't shoot immediately to the top. No, it really kind of found its home in uh, in the VHS and DVD industry because, you know, people saw it. Uh, everybody knows that uh, the stuff that Jim Henson works on is high quality, and uh, then they started, you know, looking at it in, in the same way a lot of other cult classics are. It's like, hey, have you seen this? You should go buy this DVD. It's in the bargain bin, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, the home video market was uh, huge for this movie, which uh, is how a lot of movies that don't meet success at the box office come into their own. Did it ever make its uh, its money back? I'm not sure. Um, we couldn't find any numbers on that, seeing, but um, it is a movie that is well-regarded enough that they had a 25th anniversary Blu-ray release with some special features and things like that. So, you know, if uh, if you haven't watched it and you're looking for a version to watch... That's probably the one to get unless you're, you know, watching it through a streaming service. The only data point I was able to find on the movie's legacy was that it's kind of nice. I'm sure George Lucas and Jim Henson weren't counting on this film to, you know, make them rich and famous, that kind of thing. That had already happened. But uh, <laughs> sounds, sounds like Jim Henson was aware of the fact that this movie had become a cult classic, a beloved cult classic to some Uh by the time he passed away in 1990, which was, geez, that was 26 years ago. My goodness. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Makes me feel old. I remember that happening. Mm-hmm. Me huh. too. So, um... For sure. Let's talk a bit about our own uh, history of the movie. Pete, you go first. Oh, okay. Well, um, my history with Labyrinth is not a super long one. I don't remember if I watched this movie as a kid or not. I'm thinking maybe not. It seems like the kind of movie that my mom would consider weird. Uh, <laughs> she didn't like movies like Yellow Submarine for the same reason, just weirdness. Well, that's even weirder, but, but okay. Well, that, that yeah, I think that takes it to a new level. But I, I definitely saw this movie several times as a teenager, probably a young teenager, and into young adulthood, uh, meaning that I probably have about 20 years of experience with the movie. I remember liking it mostly for its quirkiness and for the unabashed... Uh, David Bowie, his performance in this movie. And I don't know, I, I don't own a whole lot of actual movies in my uh, collection, my DVD collection, thus my frequent runs to the rental store, but I do own this one, so that that says something. What about you, Mike? What's your history? Well, my history is I know that I had watched it at one point. I have absolutely no idea when that point was, I think it might have been when I was, I don't know, eight-ish. But the thing I do remember is it was a TV cut. It probably was a VH1 TV cut because VH1, uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, used to show a lot of movies that were you know, heavily musically influenced. So uh, you know, they would show Rocky Horror Picture Show. They would show Pink Floyd's The Wall. They would show this. They would show you know, any music that featured either musicians in it or was a musical. They had a section for that. And I'm pretty sure the cut I watched was the VH1 cut of this movie. So that said, I remembered nothing about it when I watched it this time. It was right. completely blank slate for me. With fresh eyes, and that's that's as good as not that's as good as not having watched it at all. So that's not yeah. a position you're usually in, Mike. 
<laughs> no, not, that's not that's unusual for me. So why don't we just go right into uh, uh, our personal experience? Uh, you know, watching the movie this time. Uh, uh, how well, was well, it? Mike, Mike. Oh, well, Mike. Why don't you just seg right into telling us how it went watching oh. it this time? Okay, for me. All right, let's. Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay, well, um, I uh, had a pretty uninterrupted watching of it. Um, you know, I sat down with a bowl of cereal and uh, and a banana and, uh, you know, watched it over breakfast because I figured, to me, this felt like some kind of movie that uh, somebody should be watching on, like, a Saturday morning, like a cartoon thing. It felt like the right way to do it. Uh, so, so that's how I approached this watch. Uh, it worked out fine. Uh, no complaints. Um, you know, I... I borrowed the the uh, the movie from Pete, actually. So thank you. Of course, no money changed hands. That's important to note. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, what about you, Pete? Is it weird that I also consumed a banana while watching this movie? Creepy. The the little kid vibe or something uh, must have just hit us for this one. Must have. So first thing I noticed about this movie was that it is a merciful 102 minutes long as compared to the last movie we did, uh, Hook, at 141 minutes. Um, <laughs> I, I was happy about that. It, it didn't seem to drag upon watching it this time, uh, kind of, except for one or two of Bowie's musical numbers, which I, I this is not usually the reason Bowie and Drag are mentioned in the same sentence, but... <laughs> Oh, I remember some of this movie, but not that much. So I clearly haven't seen it for a while, but I, I enjoyed my viewing this time and it was uninterrupted. So bonus. All right. So uh, any particular baggage that you have to uh, to unload before we start spoiling the hell out of it? Not about this. Straight answer. So no. <laughs> so no. You, Mike, well, uh, you, you've already told us you had you had. Uh, Fresh eyes upon watching this. Yeah, so. it's pretty impossible to have baggage if you have no memory of it. That's true. All right, so with that, um, we're going to get right to the spoiler section. All right, listeners, it's that time. If you want to watch Labyrinth before we spoil the heck out of it, if you want to brush up on it, you know, give it a refresh in your mind or maybe watch it for the very first time, now's the time to do that. Go ahead and pause the podcast and we'll be waiting for you when you get done. All right, now that you're back, uh, Mike, what do you think? Should we really tell them what this movie's about? Yeah, let's do the normal elevator pitch, and, and you know what? I'll volunteer to do it this time. You've made me so happy. Go ahead. Elevator pitch for Labyrinth. We have a main character, Sarah. She likes to pretend. She likes to wear dresses over her blue jeans, and she has a not-so-great relationship with her parents who like to go out for weekend fun times, uh, whatever they do, and she gets stuck babysitting her little brother all the time. Um, she has a, a, a rapid imagination, uh, as evidenced by things in her room, and her babysitting her brother, making her resentful, makes her wish that this goblin king would come and take her brother. Little does she know, the goblin king is real and comes and takes her little brother away. And she basically gets challenged by the goblin king to try to make it through this labyrinth and save her brother within a certain number of hours. 
or else her brother turns into a goblin and is the son now of the Goblin King. She goes through the labyrinth, which is a very confusing, magic-filled journey in fantasy land, and confronts the Goblin King, uh, and then realizes that the Goblin King has no power over her, and then rescues her brother, and they have an 80s-style imaginary party in her room at the end for no apparent reason. Does that about sum it up? That was probably kind of tough to do because they give us so much information and so many diverse scenes in this movie that it would be very hard to sum it up. So well done. I tried. I I worked real hard on that one. You do your best. I mean, yeah. So with what you've got, right? So what (laughs) the heck do we want to talk about first? My gosh. There's so much in this movie. Why don't we just start with... um, can we start with Jareth, the Goblin King? I mean, that's David Bowie. That's why we came in the first place, right? Yeah, I think he's the draw in this movie, that's for sure. I mean, if you look at any of the media, he is the thing that's prominent on the cover. Right, right. And wow, is he fabulous. He's very fabulous, in fact. Uh, so He's Bowie at the height of his Bowiness. I know, right? You know, it's like, ugh, I don't even know what it's like. It's just like he, you know the 80s vomited all over him but it still turned out all right (laughs) so so yeah this goblin king uh he's not he's not a villain in the traditional sense i mean this is a kid's movie but even for a kid's movie he doesn't seem particularly intent on harming anybody per se wouldn't you wouldn't you agree with that mike yeah he seems more of a trickster like the worst thing that he threatens any of uh the people that are sort of uh ruled over Um, by him with is making them stink forever right which you know judging by the way some of these creatures look they probably already do so (laughs) i mean yeah he he threatens to throw them in a bog they're not gonna die his intention his goal for sarah appears to be just to make her give up and, and turn around and go home he's not like trying to dispatch her messily or anything and he doesn't have you know ill intent for the you know the toddler that he's kidnapped either he just he's like he's like oh you will join my family line or something like that and and his minions are pretty much uh non-threatening the the little goblins uh they're all cute uh and have personality unlike minions in a certain uh, franchise these days right uh with a capital m yeah (laughs) So, yeah, uh, for the most part, uh, yeah, he he's just there to, you know, provide challenges for Sarah, the protagonist, to uh, to overcome. But they're not necessarily challenge. They're not physical challenges. They're they're puzzles. They're resolving feelings and uh, sort of teaching her a lesson. Right. It's definitely a. Uh a journey of personal growth for Sarah, the main character. That's just basically, um, yeah, it's all just a big puzzle essentially that, uh, the goblin King has put together for her. It kind of makes you wonder which of the human characters, the goblin King is actually focused on more. Is he really trying to, you know, adopt as it were, or is he more interested in luring Sarah to him? It's, um, questionable. Sarah herself states that the Goblin King is in love with 
her mm-hmm. as part of the story that she ends up telling her brother that gets him kidnapped in the first place. And he sort of insinuates that everything he's doing is to make her better, that he's her slave, essentially, but she doesn't realize it, which to me, it seems more like he's putting her through these challenges to help her, to, to teach her to be less of a jerk, because I'm going to be honest, at the beginning <laughs> of this that. movie, <laughs> yeah, her, her parents, they're jerks. Her parents are jerks, well, and she has a right as a teenager to be a little bit rebellious, but she's not sympathetic to me at all. She's even more of a jerk. It's like she took it up to 11 I thought to me. I thought that um, the way I took it, I didn't necessarily think much of her parents. I thought, here's a girl who's very bratty, spoiled, you know, blows off her uh, obligations, uh, you know, just generally getting mad at her parents about everything. Uh they're just kind of reacting to her being a teenager, and teenagers are kind of awful. True. I guess uh, there's that one line with the mother where she says, like, it's not like you have any plans. You know, I would to- we would totally not uh, make any plans for our own if you had a date. You know, a person your age should be dating. Why don't you ever talk to us? Well, right. That's just a movie mom trope, basically. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, you should be getting married and having grandchildren. Or something like that. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just like, I don't know. I, I saw the parents as exasperatingly have to deal with this scatterbrained, uh, perhaps uh, little juvenile for her age, you know, kid that they live with. I did think it was pretty weird. Like, we saw the dad for half a second. They probably didn't even need to cast the dad. Oh, the no. dad could have just been a voice that you never even had in the room because he literally is on the screen for half right. a second. Then he knocks on the door, doesn't even care enough to open the door to talk to his daughter. So True. why is he even there? You like, know? we got to go. Yeah, and and for actually for a lot of his time in the movie, he is just a voice behind a door, including at the end. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, they wouldn't have necessarily had to do that. It could have been a phone call or something. <laughs> like, where the hell are you? Yeah, so she's, um, she perhaps, um, I know she's there to identify with the kids, but um, she's not identifiable maybe to a like 10 year old or something like that she's a bit of a heartthrob but she's really kind of she's selfish she doesn't care too much about the people around her basically when she ends up getting into the the land of the labyrinth um she sort of comes in with the expectation like like well uh you're a person i just met you have to help me right or i'm a smart capable girl who's going to be able to take, you know, do this no problem, basically. But she quickly, you know, she gets a healthy dose of reality in the labyrinth, let's put it that way. Right. She ends up meeting um, a bunch of hardships that she ends up having to uh, help other people out and not be selfish in order to accomplish the goal of, of saving her brother. And that's kind of the the journey in a nutshell. Right, right. This movie is very character-driven, uh, not just from the two main characters, which would be Sarah and uh, Jareth, but um, Sarah puts together her own little uh, D&D party, basically. A D&D party of which I feel are also not really ever in any real danger. Nobody dies in this movie. Nobody, even even in, no. in the large battle sequences that uh, crop up in the, in the end of... The movie, there's never really any danger. Nobody's trying to kill anybody. You know, uh, goblins get smashed cartoonishly and just kind of like stumble away from it. The goblins have cannon 
gunners that um, they make stormtroopers look like sharpshooters. Right. <laughs> Which we're told stormtroopers are, but we never actually see that. Um, yeah, there's machine exactly. gun fire. Uh, all sorts of, you know, deadly things happening. Not a single, there is not a single fallen soldier or comrade on the battlefield at all. Everybody goes home that night and says, whoo, that was rough. The, the closest thing that you have to actual danger in the movie is when um, uh, Sarah and Hobble are running away from the tunnel digging machine that's being driven by a couple of goblins. Right. Yeah, they've got their own chunneler. Uh, bicycle-powered chunneler, basically. You see the size of those two little goblins doing that, like, yeah, right, those two tiny little goblins are peddling <laughs> that giant machine. Well, I guess that's the mechanical advantage of whatever gearing they've got on that thing. But, yeah. <laughs> More like magical advantage. For sure. Yeah, so you mentioned Hoggle. Uh, that's the very first creature that um, Sarah finds upon entering the labyrinth, and she finds him peeing into a pond. I love that. That's great. Uh, very first thing she yeah. sees. But this guy, oh, oh, and also when we meet him, he was just taking a piss break uh, during spraying fairies with pesticides. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> I, I did think that was cute, um, especially with the whole thing like, uh, you know, uh, Sarah's like, I thought fairies are nice and grant wishes, or grant wishes and things. And like they like bite her and are just jerks. Mm hmm. And he's like, well, that's what you get from reading your stupid-ass storybooks, you know, basically. You know, head full of nonsense. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a jerky character. Um, turns out to be a villain, actually. Uh, well, he's working for the Goblin King, trying to, again, not assassinate her while she's, you know, walking in front of him, but to very kindly and gently lead her out of the uh, labyrinth, which kind of goes against the thought that Jareth was luring her in in the first place because at several points in the story he mentions that he's trying to get her to leave even when he sees her progress he's like she never should have gotten this far so it does seem at least at first like he is trying to get her to leave him alone basically Hoggle uh, is basically just out for himself and that that's kind of that's his his character journey as he starts out being out for himself he gets threatened by Jareth, and then eventually, you know, he turns from heel to good. Right. These characters that Sarah comes across during the movie all represent, you know, just like the kinds of people you meet out in the world. Uh, so Hoggle's the uh, the out for himself, like you said. He, he seems, I mean, he's cute in kind of an ugly way, but he's supposed to be a friend i guess but it turns out like he, he'll be her friend just as long as it serves his purposes basically and and eventually you know they earn each other's trust back when uh you know she saves him when he doesn't have any other anybody else and then eventually he returns the favor and then sort of that uh that pact is is cemented uh also encountered in the story is ludo the big yeti type creature that um we meet as he's being harassed by goblins, basically. Um, and this is the yeah. can't-judge-a-book-by-its-cover character for the kids, I think. Yeah, he's this uh, terrifying-looking, uh, you know, like, you know, demonish monster. And he's basically just uh, got snared in, like, a snare trap, and the goblins are just uh, picking on him. Doesn't seem like they're going to kill him or anything it just seems like they're just like aha big monster we're gonna pick on you because we're jerks well they're they're basically the the small easily dispatchable bad guys who hang around waiting to get uh 
thwarted, basically. The, <laughs> and they are very easily dispatched oh, absolutely. in this case. Every one of these goblins can yes. easily be taken out by, you know, a, a tween, basically. The, this puts a huge plot hole in the whole thing that um, Bluto is able to do, is that Bluto can control rocks and make them act as animate objects. Right. So why he couldn't save himself... I want to know who's responsible for that particular element because I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, it is cool, but I mean, why he couldn't save himself, you know, when he was being picked on? Why didn't he just, like, call out the rocks to, like, you know, do what they did anyway? Right, you know? right. Well, you know, we might have to have a, a, a plot hole section for the, this episode a little later on, but I think that that is definitely one I agree with is a plot hole. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of action and, uh, I should say, conflict in this movie that would be unnecessary if, you know, some of the characters just used the powers that they have. Let's see. We've got the famous uh, door-guarding characters. That one of us tells the truth and one of us always lies riddle. Right. Was that ripped off directly from Wonderland? I kind of feel like I remember reading I'm it. I'm pretty that. sure, yeah. And she figures it out. I think there, there was there's the sequence, the 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 hand, the helping hands they call themselves sequence, where the hands are you know like green gloved hands that basically uh, ca- catch her as she goes through the door that she correctly picked. Right. But they form different faces and things out of the hands. I think that, that is looked, some of the most creative. Right. That uh, that was things that. I've seen done with hands ever. Absolutely. That was just one of the many um, creature effects, I guess you could call that. Uh, Or just like, I don't know, mime art or something. It was just, uh, it was quite fun to see, I thought. I was like, wow, somebody came up with that. That's awesome. We've got the bird things dancing, whatever the heck those are. Right, the things that want to, you know, for fun, pull a girl's head off. Even after they find out it doesn't easily come off, it's not supposed to come off, they're like, well, just pull harder. And she's like, oh, crap. Time to behead right, the lot of them. Right, because they can basically pull off parts of their body and then reattach them at will. Right, ain't no thing. So they're like, why isn't everybody like this? Uh, uh, a character that ends up joining her party, as it were, would be that, what, Didymus? The fox? The, the chivalrous fox yes. who lives in the bog of eternal stench and just loves the smell. He wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, yeah, that's good. Why would you want to live yeah, anywhere and he's else? Like a, he's like a knight character who ends up uh, uh, riding a dog as his steed. Right. The, uh, the old English sheepdog that I didn't notice it for a while turns back and forth between a real dog and a, uh, a puppet dog. I did not notice that until it started to become very, very apparent, apparent because of the thing would do, like, you know, sit there shaking or something. Well, there was the scene with the with the, the steel golem where the dog is hiding, and they clearly use the same shot, like, eight times <laughs> when he calls the dog, and it's like, the dog's like, no. And then they, it's like, oh, they filmed this one, like, loop for ten seconds, and they just put it in the movie, like, ten times. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Got to cut costs wherever you can, right? Film is expensive. The labyrinth itself kind of feels like it's a it's a character. It's got some weird physical properties, you know. At first, it looks like it's just a big, long, straight path with, like, an 80s synth soundtrack playing in the background. But, you know, it's full of optical illusions, hidden entryways. And, you know, the girl's not dumb. She figures out how to get through it. It just seems like there's different sections. I mean, she starts out, and it's like a... An old style like castle wall, heavily fortified section. 
you know, but uh, there's optical illusions. And then later it ends up being more of a, a Greco-Roman um, ruins uh, section. Eventually, like, uh, like a, a greenery section, a garden area. Yes. And then finally, uh, and as she approaches the, the Goblin King's castle, there's uh, the surrounding Goblin town uh, around it, which is, you know, sort of like the, the center of all things. Right, right. It's um, a, a lot of good world building there, um, despite the expert way that they put it together and, and how excellent all of the the it's it's a parade of like creative characters, each more creative than the last that they are parading around. And, you know, the settings are interesting, although everything does kind of look plaster and rubber. It's still very well done, I think, and very technical. It's pretty straightforward, uh, this movie, other than there's a there's a one section in the middle where Jareth gives Hobble a apple that is magical that basically makes Sarah hallucinate hallucinate yeah i think it's a peach and she kind of i don't know if she gets transported or she's just hallucinating that it's it's all going down or what's going on it's all very very uh, trippy so yeah i think it's meant to be ambiguous whether it was real or not but the whole idea is that uh she takes it then she forgets about you know her home life she for well doesn't forget about her home life she, she forgets about her brother uh, and she gets the things that she wanted. So there's a collector character that ends up giving her all the things that that uh, she had lost that uh, at one time had been important to her right. as she was growing up as a little girl. And there's also a section that is a, a David Bowie, uh, another uh, music number, where basically they're at a big fancy party. Uh, like, like an eyes wide shut style party kind of going on in progress there with uh yeah right and, and he's like dancing with her yes david bowie who's probably in his 40s at this point is uh you know going after this sarah girl who's 15 or whatever like that it's just like <sighs> 15 canonically yes 15 canonically so it's like oh well that's a little creepy but then again he is the goblin king he's not supposed to be you know well-mannered and all that no he's He's not supposed to be a good guy. Right. No, no, no. And his whole his whole little uh, ruse there might have worked if the Goblin King had thought to remove <laughs> the chiming clock from the ballroom or whatever beforehand. So, you know, that's what kind of brings her up out of it. Right. She remembers, oh, yeah, I got to get to the whole uh, to the middle of, uh, of the labyrinth before, you know, the time runs out right. so I can save my brother. The time. The time seems very arbitrary. She it's stated, you know. First of all, I think it was an excuse to show a 13-hour clock, but she's got 13 hours <laughs> to get the baby. Why? Why 13 hours? It's 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 very arbitrarily picked out of the air it seems, but you know, they they seem like they we have to adhere to this 13-hour thing. Well, it could just be because like 13 is considered an unlucky number. Could very well be. It's then shown that the Goblin King seems to be able to manipulate time, or at very least, he can change the hands on the clock, and and it it means something. You know, he does that in order to shave several hours off of the amount of time that Sarah has left because she insults him by saying his labyrinth is easy to figure out. But but there's another plot hole right there. If he can speed the time ahead a few hours. Why doesn't he just speed it ahead 13 hours and, and end this ruse? Then he's got his uh, he's got his goblin son then, right? 
the biggest plot hole is why did he even give her any chance to do anything at all? Because her wish in the very beginning of the movie is that her brother would be taken away and never returned, you know? Right. Well, later in the movie, he says, I'm giving you everything you wanted. But um, I don't know. That's that sounds like bad guy talk to me. That sounds like, you know, genie in the, you know, evil genie in the bottle talk. You know, hey, you got your wishes. So quit bothering me, kid. Now, I did like, you know, once they had finally sort of conquered the uh, non-threatening goblin army and uh, uh, Sarah has to go face Jareth herself, that it's an M.C. Escher style uh you know, uh, area inside his castle oh, that totally. they end up sort of having the final verbal confrontation. And it, it's it's more of a musical number. I mean, it's part musical number where Jareth, Sarah, and Toby, the baby, are all wandering around on different planes of this M.C. Escher staircase. And, you know, visually, I feel like this was probably a technical masterpiece that we're kind of taking for granted because it looked... It really looks like it was probably hard to do, especially with all practical effects or camera angles or whatever. It's enough. I mean, I let the credits roll on the end of this movie, and like, uh, they basically uh, give a big shout out to MC Escher uh, uh, at, in the credits for you know for inspiring this whole sequence. But yeah, like nowadays they would just do that with CG and and be done with it. But yeah, I can't imagine all the things they had to do. There's the one scene where you literally have Sarah, Jareth, and the baby all on screen at the same time, all moving in different directions. Right, and I imagine they probably were all walking on, you know, separate staircases filmed somewhere else and, like, with the camera rotated and stuff like that, and then they just composited it all together or something. But it looks really good. It looks really good. It's one of the best effects in the movie because there are some other areas in the movie where you can clearly tell they were doing the rotoscoping and I and we've mentioned rotoscoping yes you know earlier in where they're taking you know obviously basically like a, a blue screen type thing yeah blue screen I think um, I thought the blue screen effects were the poorest of the movie definitely right and 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 maybe as you know since we watched it off an older DVD maybe in the 25th anniversary uh, Blu-ray. Uh, redo they've uh, fixed some of that so, you know because they can do some of that with a uh, post-production now take that out but yeah i mean i suppose but, george uh, lucas was involved so they probably did <laughs> did touch it up a little bit um, yeah i heard jar jar appears in the uh in the <laughs> oh, new God. 25th anniversary cut oh that's not even funny <laughs> okay fine it's funny uh, um the i huh. as far as the special effects in this movie go the creature effects they're not really special. They're all practical effects. It's all they pointed a camera at something, and that something was a really well put together, really well um, manipulated and acted puppetry, basically. Exactly. It shows what kind of a result can be achieved with practical effects, because the problem with CG even nowadays is that doesn't matter how good it is, it looks fake. You know, like especially right. especially characters on screen, you can you can always tell if something is cg and with the practical effects they got i mean just right up front the like the little worm that she sees in the labyrinth that you know tells her how to how to navigate around and stuff like that i thought that looked really good if they had made that worm yeah, a cg it worm it, even now with today's technology it would have looked worse hollywood's uh, realizing that especially with the uh, advent of uh, you know hd and how easy it is to tell a uh, practical effect is still practical versus the cg effect it did it did feel like a lot of it was um plasticky rubbery um 
you know, that was I think that was the feel they were going right. for, it, sort of on purpose. <clears throat> right. It's not in like this movie. The, it's not like the characters really had to be super realistic looking. I mean, this is a you know, kids movie with cartoonish looking creatures in it. Right, and it was all supposed to be magical. And I think, you know, when you think about the ending, so, so, so there's the whole thing of, uh, you know, obviously she, she defeats the Goblin King by saying, you have no power over me, and then uh, Jareth basically disappears, and Sarah's back home, and her baby brother's in safely in the crib and sleeping, and all of her friends are in her memory, and they have their little 80s bedroom dance party. But part of the point of this movie, I think, is whether any of this happened at all. Like, is this entirely her imagination, or was it real? Yes, that's that's a question worth asking. I can't answer that, but I can tell you that it did feel like they didn't actually come up with an ending for this movie ahead of time, basically, is what I'm saying. It felt like very all of a sudden... Uh, the Goblin King has Sarah in his grasp, basically, and she's, she basically says, you know, uh-uh, you don't own me, and at that point, he's just like, well, this is pretty hopeless, I'm just gonna, you know, give up, send you back home, essentially, and then she wakes up and everything's great. <laughs> it's just like, what? The movie ended just now? It's like, what happened? But, of course, you know, you're... Yeah, you're at least with The Wizard of Oz, that you know, you, you finally get the, the Wicked Witch defeated, and, you know, in, in clearly, you know, she's she's down, where here, you know, uh, realizing that uh, Jareth actually was the owl that you saw in the beginning of the movie and in the credits, there nothing was resolved. No, <laughs> no, it's just like uh, a complete return to the status quo without any i mean i i think what did happen here was that there was some character growth for our main character and that that's probably the entire purpose of the film i guess it's a, a, a morality story or something like that but never before i mean it just it feels like this is probably the worst case of didn't have an ending that i've ever seen in a movie yeah i'll agree with you on that one other than movies that like our comedies and conspicuously have a have a, a bullshit, you know, this movie's over now ending like Monty true, Python and the true. Holy Grail. Or, or, <laughs> or, that, that is true. Uh, or, or those slice of life movies where it's just like, uh, you know, here's four weeks of this person's life. Right. What did we learn? <laughs> we learned that we should have rented so. something else. No. <sighs> All right, so uh, anything else to say about this before we get into the verdict section? You know, we nitpicked this movie a lot. I think that um, this is a kid's movie, so you kind of have to ask yourself if it if it's appropriate to nitpick continuity errors, missing information, plot holes, that kind of thing. So that that's left up to the mind of the listener, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, th- I consider it more of a family movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if a, a kid would uh would sit down on their own and watch it i don't th- but uh but yeah we'll we'll talk about that a little bit in the verdict for sure so. all right so with that uh let's get to the verdict okay so now is the time of the podcast where we decide if the movie labyrinth is sacred bovina sanctorum or if it should be put out to pasture. 
We'll find a sacrificial candle. I think for this one, I want to go first. I want you to go first too, Mike. What's it going to be? So for this movie, I am going with not sacred, Bovinus Excommunicado. And the reason for that is it just didn't grab me the way that it should have. I didn't feel like it was grabbing my attention enough. And I know we've said it's a kid's movie. Yes. I know we've said, uh, or you said that. I've kind of considered it more of a family film because I don't know if I would just let a kid watch it on their own, and I don't know if a kid would necessarily get everything out of it. So I don't know. The only thing that's really, really caught me as 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 great was you know the creature work, obviously, and Bowie's performance. But I really didn't like the main character, the protagonist of Sarah, um, and she kind of goes from being you know a rebellious teenage jerk to being a just like oh la da 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 everything is good now and and so i didn't particularly enjoy that for me uh love the bowie think that uh dance magic dance is you know a, a great song other than that i, I probably wouldn't watch it again not essential. Not essential. All right. Some, so about of, you? some of the harshest criticism that can be levied at a movie. Not essential. <laughs> um, I struggled with this verdict for a while. It wasn't as clear to me as some of the other movies that we've been watching lately. So, And, and I was kind of wondering, what is our stated mission with Sacred Cows? Are we trying to determine if the movie is still appealing to like us? Or are we trying to determine if it's still a viable children's movie? And... You kind of answered that it's a family movie, it should appeal to everybody, which, uh, you know, to some extent, family movies are supposed to do that. But um, so, yeah, I had trouble with this one. Uh, This movie has some really amazing technical achievements uh, that look great even today. But then there are also some confusing plot elements. You know, some of the effects are dated. I think the biggest criticism for the movie is the ending. It's abrupt. It does not wrap anything up that is a hundred percent true it does not wrap a damn thing up it's 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 pretty it's pretty bad but you know it's it's hard for me okay y'all know where this is going i'm gonna say that this cow is not sacred but it's hard for me to say that it should be excommunicated because it is still you know it's it's with a heavy heart that i say that because i would still recommend watching it if you want to see some excellent creature effects if you want to see david bowie's uh rather spirited performance in the musical numbers although some of them were a little drab uh you're just gonna want to see bowie in his unforgivably 80s getup and hairstyle i mean that's it it i i'll say this the movie is not essential viewing but I will watch it again. I'm definitely not throwing my DVD away because of this verdict. So, with a heavy heart. Can we compromise and say Bowie is sacred, good special effects, the rest of it, uh, who cares, not essential? I would feel a lot better about that, certainly. Okay, so I think that we will say Bovinus Excommunicado with qualifiers. There we go. Nothing is ever, well, I don't want to say nothing. Uh, Most movies are not all bad. 
<laughs> so this right exactly this movie has its merits but not enough to tip it over to to say Chrissy. that's what we do that's why we pick the ones that are that are that are questionable obviously we do go for some softballs and pick ones that are clearly sacred too but uh but yes, this is a, this is one that made us think. So we make the hard decisions, people. All right. So with that, let's go to our closing thoughts and All talk right. about the next movies. And that concludes our review of the movie Labyrinth. Such as it is, it was worth watching so that we could come up with our verdict, I think. So before we go on and give you all the contact information and all the ways that you can interact with us which we absolutely want you to do of course it's time to talk about the next few episodes that we're going to do so i'm pretty excited about these mike what are, what what's going to happen for us well uh we've got an episode coming on uh, march 9th that will feature special guest veronica lovecraft from the cthulhu and friends podcast you may know her she's the the game master for that podcast and you can find her at typical veronica she's going to be reviewing the movie city slickers with us yeehaw and then uh, pete do you want to talk about uh what's going to be coming on march 23rd right we are going to have one of our they're becoming increasingly more rare but we are going to have a feedback episode because it has been a long time and this feedback episode we're looking for feedback from all of you. This is the last feedback episode of the year. That's right. We're going to have an anniversary after that. So we're just kind of doing a retrospective, the gear and review, and we'd like to hear from you about uh, what some of your favorite Sacred Cows moments uh, of the first season, as you were, uh, as you will, uh, there were. We uh, may revisit some interesting topics and points that we've brought up before maybe we'll do a little uh where are they now or where aren't they now perhaps for some of our dearly departed stars that we may have reviewed so it'll be it'll be a general we'll have some nostalgia about ourselves basically yeah and uh you know anything that you want us to talk about anything that you want us to to tell uh Anything is up for up for uh, grabs on this retrospective episode. It's uh, going to be a lot of fun. Write us about anything, you know. Suggest a topic, you know. We'll we'll uh, we'll talk about it. And of course, um, we've seen uh, that there's uh, there's some iTunes reviews in, and and uh, those will be uh, shared as well with uh, our requisite uh, celebrity reading. So we're uh, getting the old checkbook ready. Oh, yeah, that's right. We'll have to select a really, hopefully, uh, affordable celebrity for that. All right. And then uh, for the April 6th episode, which will be episode 26, our one-year anniversary, we've selected the movie Airplane as the movie that we're going to talk about. I'm very excited about that. You know, it was uh, we had talked about doing another Mel Brooks film for the the anniversary uh in keeping with the tradition but i think that this is going to be a super fun uh comedy of a different style so we'll see how it goes yeah it's uh, it's uh it keeps us in the in the comedy vein for our anniversary episode as a tip of the hat back to the space balls episode and uh right yet it's something completely different and now for something completely different hey speaking of which we have to do python sometime 
Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. So For sure, uh, okay. And obviously, we're going to keep you all informed. Uh, we've got lots uh, more of your uh, favorite podcast personality guests uh, coming in the next uh, months after this. Uh, and, you know, as we get closer to those dates, times, movies, and things, we will keep you informed on those. It's going to be real exciting coming up here, folks, so stay tuned. All right. So with that, if you want to talk to us, because we want you to talk to us, if you want to get your stuff on the uh, retrospective episode and or just uh, give us a shout-out, uh, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Sacred Cows Pod. That is at Sacred Cows Pod. We're always looking for uh, tweets there, and we'll talk back to you. Uh, we've also got Sacred Cows at HeroOfTheWeb.com, which is our email address. Uh, again, Sacred Cows at HeroOfTheWeb.com. Lots of uh, you like to send us longer form uh, messages, and uh, you know this is a great way to talk about your favorite memories and, and or give us discussion points for the retrospective episode. So that's where you should send those. And then, of course, we do need your iTunes reviews. Uh, Stitcher reviews are good, too. Uh, but iTunes reviews tend to uh, help us uh, rise further into the rankings. So we love those five-star reviews. Feel free to bash us if you want in the comments. Uh, give us backhanded compliments and such. But uh, those five-star reviews We're are used super to it. important. Uh, Pete, how can they get in touch with you? Well, you know, I suppose I'm going to have to cave in one of these times and get the Twitter so that you can contact me with your IBMs and your Macintoshes, your cellular telephones. Uh, maybe I'll do that for the anniversary. Okay, well, that will be an exciting moment indeed. And, yes, uh, pre prepare to encounter a lot of Twitter faux pas that nobody has committed for eight years. <laughs> All right. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at White Morph, and I will uh, talk back at you as well. Any last words before we uh, exit the show for today? The owl was the goblin king the whole time. <gasps> Spoilers. Spoiler. Okay. <laughs> well, that, that's priceless right there. All right. I, I think it's the same owl that Harry Potter gets, probably. Yeah, yeah. I recognized that owl. Hmm. Despite the, you know, 25-year difference, I think, for the uh, the movies. Harry but Potter's Owl is the Goblin King. Okay, let's end with that. Yeah, food for thought. All right, have a good one, everyone. See you next time. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. <laughs>